The launch of the SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket in February of 2018 was a state-of-the-art triumph. It was the culmination of scientific study that reached back centuries. But to get here, we had to start there, in Renaissance England, with a man who pushed the limits of knowledge and changed everything, from art to science to government. That man was Francis Bacon, and among his many great achievements was one that laid the groundwork for almost every scientific experiment for the last 400 years. By valuing observation over assumption, detail over the big picture, and flexibility over stubborn beliefs, he created the scientific method, a process of experimentation powerful enough that it has survived centuries. The scientific method is a process that includes making a hypothesis, testing and retesting until the results are found. It is through this empirical method of observation that humankind has produced countless theories and inventions. Including the Falcon Heavy, a rocket that first needed the testing and retesting of its predecessor, Falcon 9, and the testing and retesting of the countless physical laws pertinent to rocket science over hundreds of years. Francis Bacon laid some of the basic foundations for our modern world, but he was only able to do this by bulldozing through a life filled with politics, drama, and scandal. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Sir Francis Bacon. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. And now, back to the life of Francis Bacon. Our subject today was a classic overachiever who climbed about as high as you could in Elizabethan England. But what affects us most today is that he also taught us how to think. Put another way, he rebooted the way we approach the world, and he pushed us toward a scientific method that made the modern world possible. Today we focus on Sir Francis Bacon, lion of government, philosopher, scientist. And some believe he was even greater than that. Was he also the real William Shakespeare? Francis Bacon was born on January 22, 1561, to Sir Nicholas and Anne Bacon into a family that was well-connected to the court of Queen Elizabeth I. Sir Nicholas was the keeper of the Great Seal. This title meant he had custody of the actual device that made wax impressions on official government documents. This grand-sounding title carried with it real powers. It made Sir Nicholas the chief legal officer of the government and primary advisor to the queen. Francis's mother was accomplished in her own right. Born and cook circa 1528, her father Anthony was a knight and a one-time tutor of the royal family. He made sure that Anne and her sisters received the best education available, which was unusual for the time. Anne was taught by the leading scholars of her day. She had a perfect command of Latin and Greek, and she was one of the greatest translators of the era. 
Centuries later, Oxford scholar and Chronicles of Narnia author C.S. Lewis praised her as one of the best Latin translators of all time. Lady Anne's duties also extended to the royal court, where she served as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth. Her son, Francis Bacon, was the youngest of eight children. His first six brothers and sisters were from Sir Nicholas's previous marriage and had grown up by the time Francis and his older brother Anthony were born. Francis and Anthony were raised in the family's country estate in Herefordshire, where the two faced a rigorous education. High-born boys like these were raised to be well-rounded statesmen who would one day lead England. Preparation for this began in 1565, when the boys were around four years old. Private tutors schooled them at home, which was especially important for Francis, who was often plagued with poor health and had to stay indoors. A contemporary curriculum of the time shows a rigorous lesson plan for boys that would shock us today, and yet it was just another day at school for upper-class boys under the age of 13. 7 o'clock to 7.30, dancing. 7.30 to 8, breakfast, 8 to 9, French, 9 to 10, Latin, 10 to 10.30, writing and drawing. That was followed by common prayers like the Hail Mary and the Lord's Prayer, and then they had lunch. The day resumed from 1 to 2 with cosmography, which was the social studies and humanities of the day. 2 to 3, more Latin, 3 to 4, more French, and then 4 to 4.30, handwriting exercises. On holy days, the lesson plan was modified so that the student would read an epistle and gospel from the Bible in his native English before lunch and then read the same books in Greek directly afterward. All the rest of the day would be taken up with riding horses, archery, and dancing as long as time was left over for more prayer. This was the kind of comprehensive education the well-born boys of the time completed, often before they reached puberty. Francis Bacon finished his homeschooling at the astonishing age of 12 and was admitted into Trinity College, Cambridge, in 1573. At Cambridge, Bacon discovered the works of Roman author Pliny the Elder, and his Naturalis Historia, the first-ever encyclopedia of natural and geographic knowledge. This book and others like it inspired Bacon's love for observing and categorizing the natural world, a love that remained with him for the rest of his life. It was also at Cambridge that Bacon first met Queen Elizabeth, who was now 41 years old and in the 16th year of her reign. Witnesses say she was so impressed by the 13-year-old's intellect that she took to calling him the young Lord Keeper. In 1576, the 15-year-old Francis left Cambridge without earning his degree, but with his father's blessing. Another kind of education beckoned, in the form of an assistant position to the English ambassador to the French royal court. This meant relocating to France, where Bacon learned the practical application of statecraft in a country that was England's nearest neighbor and sometimes enemy, though the two nations were presently maintaining an uneasy peace. Over the next two and a half years, Bacon learned the basics for a teen destined to one day move in government circles. Those basics included the finer points of diplomatic language, even the proper way to doff a cap and bow to high-ranking officials. Also while in France, Bacon discovered a group that called itself La Pliade, a band of French poets and scholars who sought to improve the French language for future generations. 
La Pleiade would later inspire Bacon to work on improving English in much the same way. By the autumn of 1577, Bacon had earned the full confidence of the English ambassador. Sir Amias Paulet entrusted Bacon, still just 16, with carrying important diplomatic communications back to England. The recipients were Elizabeth's spymaster, Francis Walsingham, her chief advisor, Lord Burley, and even the Queen herself. The death of Bacon's father, Sir Nicholas, in 1579 brought Bacon crashing back to earth. He returned immediately to England, his young life thrown into uncertainty. Sir Nicholas died without building a significant enough inheritance for his sons. This left the now 18-year-old Bacon with a fraction of the support he should have received and uncomfortably dependent upon his mother. This would be the beginning of a lifelong struggle with money for Bacon. His education came to the rescue, at least partially, in a place called Gray's Inn in London. Gray's was, and still is, an inn of court, an official institution where prospective lawyers learn their craft, network, and often establish regular offices. Being accepted into an inn of court is essential to a legal career and one day to holding high office. Inns of courts were more than schools of law, however. They functioned as learned fraternity houses, where young law students were also taught singing, music, and dancing. They put these skills to the test in what were called revels. These were rambunctious festivals, usually tied to holidays like Christmas, where students put on concerts and plays and did a fair amount of drinking. During these Grey's Inn revels, Bacon proved himself to be multi-talented. Not only did he participate, he also staged and wrote for them. One of his best-known works of the time was a mask, or skit, called Knights of the Helmet. In it, the characters take their inspiration from the goddess Athena and promise to carry her ancient wisdom to their fellow English subjects. Making his country better through educating its subjects was a central theme that Francis Bacon later elaborated on in spectacular fashion. And Knights of the Helmet was the first real indication that he planned to be a lot more than just a lawyer and government official. In the play, a band of knights pledges to take up Athena's helmet, which made the wearer invisible. Athena also brandished a spear, which they vowed to shake at ignorance. Bacon's devotion to Athena the spear shaker would one day lead to speculation that he was more than just a writer of skits. During Bacon's time at Grace, he continued to struggle making ends meet. He and his brother Anthony both remained uncomfortably dependent upon their now overbearing mother, Lady Anne. Her husband's death made her increasingly obsessive over her son's daily lives. She regularly wrote letters questioning their decisions and their personal morality. In one letter, the strictly Puritan Lady Anne ordered her now adult sons not to eat too late or to drink in excess. She also disapproved of what she called Bacon's sinful involvement in the revels, which depicted fantasy worlds full of witches, fairies, and monsters. Bacon listened to his mother respectfully, but he never adopted her puritanical view of the world. How could he when there was so much still to learn in the dark corners of the cosmos? In 1580, Bacon wrote a letter to his uncle, Lord Burley, who also happened to be chief advisor to the Queen. 
The letter illustrates what the 19-year-old was thinking as he stood on the threshold of his life. In the letter, Bacon shrewdly compared himself to Burley, writing, quote, We both dedicate unto Her Majesty's service the use and spending of our lives, end quote. Bacon was already sharpening what he saw as his life's twofold crusade, to pursue high office, and like the French La Pliade had taught, to improve the English mind through his essays and books. You could say that Bacon's motto became, knowledge is power. He believed that knowledge would not only advance himself in government, it would also make his countrymen better subjects. So far though, the knowledge he gained made him smart, but it had achieved little else, and he was on a timetable. His father was appointed attorney for the crown in his 30s and was named keeper of the seal by his mid-40s. Bacon would need to make great strides in his 20s if he wanted to match or exceed his father's career. In 1581, the 20-year-old Bacon was appointed an outer, or junior, barrister, the first real step towards serving as an attorney acting on behalf of the crown. Soon after, he began practicing law out of financial necessity from an office at Gray's. As an adult, Bacon was energetic, but not physically imposing. He was tall for his time, but was sometimes described as frail. His eyes were one of his most striking features. They burned with intensity when he argued, and one contemporary described them as light hazel, the color of a viper's. This rather startling feature was sometimes used against him when enemies tried to sow discord among his colleagues. As intellectually imposing as he was, Bacon struggled to make inroads into the Queen's service. He had been educated from an early age to serve the state like his father had, but his progress was frustratingly slow. In 1581, the 20-year-old Bacon was elected as a member of the House of Commons in Parliament, representing parts of Dorset. This began a parliamentary career that lasted 37 years and gave Bacon a connection to the common people. The 1580s in England was a time when people power was making greater steps into the public arena. Wealthy aristocrats were taking over common lands through enclosure. Uh, that is, they confiscated public fields to raise private livestock, and they did it with government approval. Poor farmers often rioted against this confiscation, and in 1549, they rose up in what was called Ket's Rebellion, destroying fences and seizing the town of Norwich. As a member of the House of Commons, Bacon saw this as fundamentally unfair, and he argued against the campaign of enclosure. His side lost that battle. Those lands have been privately owned ever since, but during the fight, he demonstrated a sympathy for the common folk that was unusual for a man of his education and background. He also became an outspoken advocate for tolerance toward the Puritans. They were a powerful faction in England during the latter half of the 16th century and even boasted high-ranking sympathizers in Elizabeth's government. But their regular cajoling for radical reform within the state church caused increasing tensions across the country. In the mid-1570s, a number of Puritan leaders were thrown in prison. Bacon's sympathy for the agitating Puritans must have been fueled in part by his mother, whose fervent Puritan beliefs increased in intensity with each letter she wrote to him. Being a voice for public tolerance certainly contributed to the public good, which was a passion of Bacon's, but it still wasn't enough. In 1584, 
the 23-year-old Bacon wrote a second letter to the Queen, entitled Advice to Queen Elizabeth. He advised her on political issues of the day, including how to deal with insurgent Catholics who were plotting to overthrow her. England had been a Catholic nation until 1534, when Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII, declared himself, and not the Pope, head of the church. When Henry died, his daughter, Queen Mary I, reinstated Catholicism as the state religion. But when she passed away in 1558, Elizabeth succeeded her and declared England Protestant once more. Over a bloody 24-year period, from 1534 to 1558, the state religion changed three times. And when the Pope declared that English Catholics should overthrow Elizabeth, the danger from English Catholics only increased. Against this backdrop, Bacon still argued against outright persecution of English Catholics. He favored more subtle approaches to weaken their opposition, like softening oaths of allegiance. The Queen, however, showed little enthusiasm for Bacon or his ideas. Lord Burley was just as indifferent. Thus, they did not recommend Bacon for any high position, like a judgeship or an ambassadorship, or a seat on the Queen's Council. Bacon continued to seek patrons within the government, and in 1585, at 24 years old, he allied himself with Francis Walsingham, the Queen's chief spymaster. He used his seat in Parliament to advocate on behalf of Walsingham for vigilance in uncovering Catholic plots. He also aided the spymaster in investigating insurgent Catholics, and he advised on code-breaking for the emerging Queen's secret service. In 1586, he performed his most overt service for Walsingham, advocating in Parliament for the execution of Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, after it was discovered she was plotting to seize the throne. The Queen's council was uniformly in favor of trying and executing Mary, even if the queen herself was ambivalent about killing a God-anointed fellow sovereign. By supporting the execution, Bacon hoped to show himself to be a stalwart ally of Burley and Walsingham where it counted most, and he hoped his sober judgment on the matter would be remembered if the queen could be persuaded to sign the death warrant. The following year proved that Bacon had chosen the right side of the argument. Elizabeth relented and Mary was beheaded in February 1587. It wouldn't be long before the 26-year-old Bacon would be seeking other powerful figures to attach himself to. In 1590, he set his sights on one of the most influential men in the realm, Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex. Devereux proved to be just the man Bacon needed to advance his name in the court of Queen Elizabeth. And he also proved to be a very dangerous man to know. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now back to our story. Through 1590, Francis Bacon continued to write letters of advice to anyone in power who would listen. Another figure he sought to connect with was Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex. Devereux was a commanding presence at court. Handsome and charming, he often seemed to skate by on star power alone. He had the Queen's confidence, and it seemed to many her heart. He was a man on the rise, and a good man to know if, like Bacon, you wanted to rise yourself. 
In 1591, the 30-year-old Bacon finally persuaded Devereux to accept his highly educated advice. The Earl reciprocated by helping Bacon with his own ambitions. Devereux recommended Bacon for the post of Attorney General, one of the most powerful positions at court. This put Bacon in direct competition with a man named Edward Coke, who was nine years older and had more legal experience. It didn't help Bacon's chances that a powerful man on the Queen's Council disliked the man he had tied so many of his hopes to. Robert Cecil was Lord Burley's son and Bacon's cousin, and he now served on the Queen's Council alongside his father. Cecil grew up with Devereux, and his hunchback made him a childhood target of the Earl's unkind treatment. So it's not surprising that Coke got the position. The ramifications of the appointment were long-lived. It aggravated the Devereux-Cecil feud, and it made Coke a lifelong rival of the younger Bacon. Bacon and Coke would often exchange insults. Once, when Bacon told Coke he should stop boasting about his greatness, Coke replied, quote, I don't need to stand on greatness because you are less than little, less than least. Bacon's resentment of Coke grew even more when Bacon got dumped by the wealthy Lady Elizabeth Hatton. Even though he poured all of his efforts into courting her, she suddenly announced her love for Edward Coke. Adding insult to injury, through marriage, Coke gained access to the vast Hatton fortune that could have gone to the cash-strapped Bacon. Bacon's money woes had continued into his 30s. In 1593, he wrote a pained letter to Lord Burley, where he lamented his financial state and asked again for a post with a higher income. After all, how could he serve his country if money problems held him back? While doing so, he despaired over his latest birthday, a further sign he felt time was running out on his dreams of greatness. His letter began, quote, One in thirty years is a great deal of sand in the hourglass. Burley must have smiled when he read such a line from a man who was still relatively young. He decided to leave his young nephew to his own devices for a little while longer. In 1597, 36-year-old Francis Bacon published his first major book, a set of ten short works or essays. Essays were a literary form that Bacon perfected. Easily digestible and available in bookstalls, These essays proved to be the most popular of Bacon's works during his lifetime. The essays were significant because they showed Bacon to be a serious observer of nature, the study of which he saw as essential to society's advancement. One of these essays was entitled The History of the Winds. Wind power was an important subject for the English, whose sailing ships and windmills depended on it. Bacon would have no way of knowing the actual atmospheric causes of winds, but he argued that an effort must be made to try to predict weather patterns. He wrote, quote, If rules are diligently framed, a prediction will generally hold good, end quote. These attempts at forecasting atmospheric changes make Bacon one of the world's first weathermen. No one else in Europe at the time was forming meteorological theories like he was. In his essay of gardens, Bacon wrote that, quote, all depends on keeping the eye steadily fixed upon the facts of nature, and so simply receiving their images as they are, end quote. This was a revolutionary way of thinking in a world where so much knowledge was handed down through folk wisdom and religious dogma. By taking such a point of view, 
Bacon began creating an intellectual atmosphere that led to all of the men and women of science who followed. This approach made non-biased observation the starting point of learning. From there, he instructed that the observation should be tested and that we should draw conclusions only after experiments are concluded. Which is why Bacon is now credited with being the father of what we now call the scientific method. Bacon's relative success as a scholar and author didn't bring in a lot of money, however, and he needed a lot more of it. His lack of family wealth meant that state salaries had to be large enough for him to keep up with his contemporaries. His money situation grew more serious when he was arrested for debt in 1598. Adding to the humiliation, it happened outside the Tower of London as Bacon was leaving a legal council meeting. Lord Burley must now have recognized the sad state of Bacon's bank accounts. Soon after the arrest, the Queen's treasurer covered most of the debt. In spite of such embarrassing setbacks, Bacon's new patron, the Earl of Essex, continued his support and soon provided Bacon with a front row seat to a real-life drama of the era. In 1598, following Bacon's advice, Devereux sought and won the position of commander of the Queen's forces in Ireland. Irish lords had been in full revolt against the English ever since Henry VIII had launched a campaign to reconquer the island. In 1599, the Queen appointed Devereux the Lord Lieutenant of the campaign and gave him 16,000 men, the largest army ever sent to subdue the Irish. Flush with new power and favor, the Earl of Essex, and by extension, Bacon, were front and center on the national stage. Bacon remained true to his instincts, though, advising Devereux to act temperately with the Irish locals, but still to use military force where appropriate. Devereux proved, however, that neither his diplomacy nor his military skills were equal to the challenge. He failed to engage the rebels at all, and when he finally did face them, he made a truce without permission from the Queen. In 1599, Devereux returned to England in disgrace and was placed under house arrest. Bacon then tried to broker a reconciliation between Elizabeth and the out-of-favor Earl, but the man who had seemed such a promising patron followed his military failure with rebellion. In 1601, Devereux shocked the court and Bacon himself by mounting a coup against the queen he felt had disgraced him. His plan was to topple her and place James of Scotland on the throne. The attempt quickly dissolved, however, when the Londoners Devereux expected to rally to his side wanted no part of it. Following Devereux's arrest, Bacon reluctantly aided in his prosecution at court. In a letter to his former patron, Bacon grimly remarked, quote, The end was treason, as hath been sufficiently proved, end quote. The sad, self-inflicted fall of Devereux culminated on February 25, 1601, when he was beheaded in the Tower of London. He was the last ever to be executed there. Ironically, it was the downfall of his mentor that led to Bacon's first real inroad toward Elizabeth's inner circle. His eloquence in prosecuting Devereux built trust between him, Cecil, and Elizabeth herself. Within a few months, Elizabeth chose the 40-year-old Bacon to write the official account of how his one-time patron became a traitor. By 1601, 
Francis Bacon finally had the attention of Queen Elizabeth I. She had been in power for 44 years and had seen her nation blossom. She restored the nation's wealth, fended off the invasion threat by the Spanish Armada, and presided over decades of peace at home. But the Queen's health was failing, and everyone knew the end was near. In 1602, Bacon was now studying the changing political winds. He sent emissaries to King James of Scotland, the monarch that Elizabeth's council had selected as the heir presumptive. Bacon wanted to make sure the future king was aware of exactly who he was and what he could do for James in an English royal court. And he rather deftly smoothed over the uncomfortable fact that he had helped prosecute the Earl of Essex, who tried prematurely to place James on the throne. It helped that James had no knowledge of the attempted coup and he grew to respect Bacon's conduct following the rebellion. All the pieces were in place for Bacon's dramatic second act, when the reign of Queen Elizabeth I faded to black. On March 24, 1603, Queen Elizabeth died at Richmond Palace in London. Within hours following her death, Robert Cecil and the Queen's Council proclaimed King James VI of Scotland to be King James I of England. With James' ascension, Bacon's early efforts to forge a relationship with the future King of England paid off spectacularly. Before 1603 ended, he was knighted by the King. The following year, James made the 43-year-old a member of his Great Council. One of Bacon's first assignments was to oversee creation of the official document laying out how the kingdoms of England and Scotland would unify now that they shared a king. In 1605, Bacon published his first major book entitled Advancement of Learning, and he dedicated it to King James. In the book, Bacon elaborated on his life's main thesis, that knowledge must be empirical. That is, it must be received directly through the senses and must be proved to be true through experimentation. In his dedication, Bacon summarized the purpose of his book and his life up to that point. It echoed the pledge he made to Queen Elizabeth many years before. Quote, Believing I was born for the service of mankind, I set myself to consider in what way mankind might best be served. End quote. Other elements of Bacon's life seemed to be coming together too. In 1606, the 45-year-old married 14-year-old Alice Barnum, the daughter of a well-connected member of Parliament. There is evidence that Bacon composed a sonnet for his betrothed, as any well-bred classical scholar would. Keep in mind that it is far from proven that Bacon wrote this piece, but it might have been a key part of his courting tactics. Listen as he brushes aside the 30-year age difference and claims the teenager's love makes him forever young. Glass shall not persuade me that I am old, so long as youth and you are of one date. But when in the time's furrows I behold, then look I death my days should expiate. For all the beauty that cover thee is but the seemly raiment of my heart, which in thy breast doth live as thine in me. How can I be elder than thou art? That sonnet and others like it worked their magic. Contemporary accounts were that the two were a happy couple for many years, though they did remain childless. In 1607, Bacon was awarded the position of Solicitor General, which made him the top lawyer in the land, answerable only to the Attorney General. 
In 1608, Bacon's uncle, Lord Burley, named him Clerk of the Star Chamber, the secretive courtroom where the high and mighty were judged when it was felt ordinary courts would not convict. The prestige the appointment gave Bacon also improved his credit rating. He was able to borrow more money, which he used to fill the financial shortfall caused by his lack of family wealth. The following year, Bacon's influence extended across the Atlantic Ocean. His 1609 report on the Virginia colony argued for the economic feasibility of planting an English presence in the New World. Bacon is also credited with writing the two original charters of government for the colony. Which means you could argue that long before George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson were even born, Francis Bacon was a founding father of what would become the United States of America. In 1613, 52-year-old Francis Bacon was finally appointed to the highest legal office in the land, that of Attorney General, the position he had lost to Edward Coke years earlier. At last, he had ascended to become the top lawman in England, but it did not come without a fair amount of manipulation behind the scenes. Bacon shrewdly persuaded the king to shuffle a number of judicial appointments and make room for Bacon himself to become the AG. It might surprise some to learn that, as attorney general, an intellectual like Bacon sometimes employed torture while building his cases. Information he received from racking suspects led to several treason convictions. Bacon and his team also could act as detectives. In 1616, they got a murder conviction against Robert Carr, the first Earl of Somerset, and his wife, Frances Howard. Bacon was forced to make a temporary truce with Edward Coke, now the Lord Chief Justice, and the two unraveled the mystery surrounding the poisoning of Carr's closest friend, Sir Thomas Overbury. Several co-conspirators to the crime were tried and hanged, and finally, Carr and his wife were put on trial. This was the Elizabethan equivalent to the trial of the new century. In spectacular fashion, Bacon and Coke proved beyond doubt the guilt of Carr's wife. Both Carr and Lady Frances were convicted and confined to the tower, and Bacon's fame spread even further. By 1616, Sir Francis Bacon had achieved the record of service he had always wanted. He was a judge, MP, clerk of the Star Chamber, attorney general, and former solicitor general, and he was widely seen as a great writer, orator, and negotiator between Parliament and the stubborn king. Inevitably, resentment of his power began to grow. Many feared him. He was, perhaps, second only to the king himself. And he still had an influential enemy in the government, Edward Coke. In spite of their collaborative triumph in the Overbury case, the former attorney general still nursed a grudge against Bacon. He was watching Bacon even more closely, especially after Bacon got the king to dismiss him as chief justice for trying to weaken royal legal authority. Meanwhile, in 1618, the 57-year-old Bacon received even more influence. He was made Lord Chancellor, the highest position in England's legal profession and one of the most powerful posts in the country. The king followed that with making Bacon a peer of England, the elite of the elite, naming him Francis Lord Verulam. This elevated him to the House of Lords, the upper, more powerful legislative chamber in Parliament. Which made Bacon the only man in history to occupy seats in the House of Commons and the House of Lords at the same time. 
And finally, in 1621, Bacon was made Viscount St. Alban, a further elevation within the peerage. Bacon had ascended to lofty heights indeed, and there was practically nowhere to go from there, except maybe down. And Bacon's bitter rival, Edward Coke, was just waiting for the chance to make that happen. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to historical figures. By 1621, Sir Francis Bacon enjoyed fantastic success, fulfilling his life's twofold crusade to pursue high office and improve the English mind through his essays and books. His list of accomplishments was long. He was an influential writer and philosopher, and he occupied many of the highest offices in the land, including Lord Chancellor, which arguably made him second only to King James in power and influence. But this lion of government had a weakness that proved to be fatal to his ambitions. He was spending far too much money. A lot of his expenses were due to the cost of statecraft and lordship. Bacon was expected regularly to entertain vast numbers of people at his homes, which was costly. At the same time, Bacon could be excessive. His employee roles at his London residence, York House, listed up to 66 people in positions such as chaplains, seal bearers, ushers, secretaries, and waiters. With these constant financial stresses, Bacon began secretly to receive cash gifts from wealthy contacts within government. This was not an uncommon practice, and to this day, there's no evidence the gifts influenced his specific rulings as judge and attorney general. But Edward Coke saw it differently. In 1621, he launched formal charges against Bacon and was appointed to lead the investigation. Bacon was subsequently served with 23 charges relating to bribes. There would be no trial, however. Bacon quickly confessed to his misdeeds. My lords, he wrote in a letter to the investigative committee, it is my act, my hand, and my heart. Then he inserted a biblical reference, begging mercy for his weaknesses. I beseech your lordships to be merciful to a broken reed. Parliament was not in a merciful mood, and in late 1621, they impeached the 60-year-old Bacon for bribery and corruption. This was the first time in a century an officer of the crown was so removed. Parliament also levied an astonishing 40,000-pound fine and committed Bacon to the Tower of London. The king quickly released Bacon from the tower and remitted the fine, but the rest of the sentence was devastating enough. All of Bacon's judicial power was revoked, and he was forever banned from the royal verge, meaning he was barred from coming within 12 miles of court. He was also banned from ever holding a seat in Parliament again, and he narrowly escaped being stripped of his noble title. It was one of history's most spectacular, tragic character arcs, and it was a devastating humiliation for a man who had always seen himself as a crusading knight for his god, his king, and his country. In 1622, 61-year-old Bacon retreated from York House in London to his family home in Herefordshire. There, he planned to write and observe the natural wonders of his many gardens. Of course, Bacon's money problems followed him into retirement, and that meant they followed his wife, Lady Alice. She had expected more fortune would come from being married to the illustrious Sir Francis. 
She even found herself in the humiliating position of sometimes asking family and friends for money to support the lifestyle of a woman in her position. The year of 1622 must have seemed like the end for the once great Francis Bacon. Most men didn't live past 60 in those days. What kind of future did the 61-year-old have now? Quite a good one, as it turns out. Like the mythical phoenix that Queen Elizabeth was often compared to during her reign, Sir Francis Bacon, Viscount St. Alban, found a way to rise from the ashes. In what is an inspiration to late bloomers everywhere, Bacon wrote all of his major works after he turned 60. Starting in 1623, Bacon expanded his 1605 book, The Advancement of Learning, into a six-part mega-work called The Instauratio Magna, The Great Instauration. Bacon argued that educated men all the way back to Aristotle were doing it wrong. As he saw it, the downfall of education was that it failed to encourage questioning and debate. Bacon's observations are still relevant to us today, especially when he dealt with the biases we carry with us into every conversation. In one part of the volume called Novum Organum Scientarium, or the New Instrument of Science, Bacon called out our prejudices, or what he called our idols. The first he pinpointed were the idols of tribe, those assumptions common to your social group. The second were the idols of the den, those biases peculiar to yourself and your own experiences. The third group of idols, those of the marketplace, were distortions that come from the common misuse of language. And the fourth grouping, the idols of theater, are assumptions we make because religious or political dogma require it. Publication of the Novum Organum helped to restore Bacon's reputation. It won him acclaim across Europe. Bacon penned a number of other books that would only be published after his death. In 1623, Bacon wrote History of Life and Death, in which he explored the quest for longevity through medicine and the proper balance between physical and spiritual pursuits. Around the same period, Bacon created his own utopia in The New Atlantis, in which a fictitious group of Europeans discovers a lost island that has ordered itself according to the principles that Bacon set out in his earlier works. From the New Atlantis, we learn the ideal society that exists on the island pursues generosity and enlightenment, dignity and splendor, piety and public spirit. The university that these enlightened islanders built, called Solomon's House, is prophetic in how it foresees the modern research university. Earlier in the podcast, we wondered if Bacon could be called an early founding father of the United States. It has been speculated that he passed down the New Atlantis manuscript to America's founding members via a mutual connection to the Freemasons, and that the aspirations of the Baconian utopia inspired the American Constitution. Which might explain why Thomas Jefferson, whose close associates were Freemasons, remarked in 1789 that he believed Bacon to be one of the greatest men who ever lived. And since we're mentioning his alleged connections to the secret society of the Freemasons, we should explore the more mysterious side of Sir Francis Bacon. Even the most educated of society during Bacon's time had one foot in the realms of science and the other in the world of the occult. Astrology was regarded as a reliable guide to life, 
Magicians called maguses advised Queen Elizabeth. Secret societies also abounded. Some believe that Bacon was actually the early founder of the Freemasons in England and the president of another secret society called the Rosicrucians. The Rosicrucian were a hidden group of writers and artists who sought to weave what they called ancient wisdom into their work with an eye to transforming the culture. That wisdom came from the early Egyptians, Greeks, and the Jewish Kabbalah. The codes of conduct they espoused are most simply described as devotion to a higher power and sensitivity to the spirit realm. Rosicrucians believed it was as real as the physical world. And this is where the idea that Bacon was actually Shakespeare was born. Most scholars today argue that evidence abounds proving that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, but the belief that he was a pen name used by Bacon has persisted to this day. Well-known adherents to this theory, like Mark Twain and present-day Shakespearean actor Mark Rylance, believe that the name and persona of William Shakespeare might have been a mask behind which Bacon wrote or commissioned the plays that carry the Shakespeare name. But why bother with such a mask? Well, the theory is that Bacon believed God had ordered him to avoid the applause of men and weave God's wisdom into, quote, cunning mixtures of the theater. And remember the mask written by Bacon for Gray's Inn called Knights of the Helmet, where followers of the goddess Athena shook a spear at ignorance? Believers see this as the origin of the name Shake a Spear itself, and that Bacon created the persona with the help of a willing actor and frontman named William Shakespeare. And before you dismiss the idea outright, remember the sonnet that Bacon wrote for his new bride in 1606, the one that begins, glass shall not persuade me that I am old, so long as youth and you are of one date? Well, that's also Shakespeare's sonnet number 22, word for word. It wasn't published under the Shakespeare name until three years later. The final year of Bacon's life saw its highs and lows. In 1625, his marriage to 33-year-old Lady Alice ended in scandal. Bacon discovered Alice was having a romantic relationship with Sir John Underhill, who had once been an usher in Bacon's York House residence. Bacon may have been the last to learn of the affair. Lady Alice had done little to conceal it, and it was well known back at court. Enraged, Bacon wrote Alice entirely out of his will, and the two became permanently estranged. Bacon spent 1625 alone at his home in Herefordshire. As he had done so many times before, he let his profound intellect lift him out of the moment to create something worthwhile. He continued to write and conduct experiments. One cold day in 1626, while traveling into London, Bacon had the idea of experimenting on how meat may be preserved through freezing. He leapt from the coach he was in and asked a local woman to sell him a chicken and then gut it. Bacon then stuffed the carcass with snow, the first recorded food preservation experiment using ice. It was sometime during this experiment that the 65-year-old Bacon suddenly became cold and feverish. He took to his bed, suffering either from pneumonia or from an infection handling the slaughtered bird. In a brief letter to his friend, the Earl of Arundel, Bacon recounts the event. The letter shows that, even in his last brief inspiration, Bacon was on to something. He wrote, quote, 
As for the experiment itself, it succeeded excellently well, but in the journey, I was taken with such a fit of casting as I know not whether it were the stone, or some surfeit, or cold, or indeed a touch of them all three." It was worse than that. Bacon did not know it at the time, but he penned that letter from his deathbed. Three days later, he died at Earl Arundel's mansion on April 9, 1626. Death was not an end for Bacon. As we've seen, his ideas carried through to our own century as science, philosophy, and government draw from his revolutionary approach to knowledge. It's no exaggeration to say that he changed the course of history by rebooting the way we think. The list of thinkers and scientists who followed Bacon's empirical approach to observing nature is long. There were people like Thomas Hobbes, who knew Bacon during his lifetime. He spent long hours writing down Bacon's thoughts while the two walked in Bacon's garden. Hobbes went on to become a political philosopher who is still quoted today. And then there's William Harvey, who benefited from spending hours in Bacon's company as his personal physician. His later studies of blood circulation revolutionized medicine. And the list continues after Bacon's death, from Newton to Locke to Darwin to Einstein. And then there's the influence Bacon might have had on the world of literature. We could be quoting Bacon when we quote Shakespeare and not even know it. Wait, Vanessa, William Shakespeare's plays could be Bacon's greatest achievement. And most people don't know that we have Bacon to thank for them? Maybe, Carter. And the great Francis Bacon, the invisible spear shaker for Athena, might have preferred it that way. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every other Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Graham Barnard and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 